Amen. All right, let's go Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take one of those physical ones home. The reason for that is super simple. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of very important things, but chief among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. Listen, we want you to know God, like, full stop. Like, that's the thing that we're aiming at here. And so if the, His Word is what He uses to draw you to Himself, then not having a Bible outside of this place puts you at a disadvantage. And so we can fix that this morning by taking that cheap paperback Bible home. And if you'll read it, I'll call it a win. Uh, so we're back in our Roman series. We shut things down for the summer. I uh, had some other stuff going on. Uh, just had some fun with some things. And, uh, but uh, there's some crispness in the air again. Like, I don't know if you know this, but this is easily one of my favorite things about living in New England. Like, I, I like y'all, but I really love the Christmas in the air, right? And so I know it's a little warmer today, but all of this last week, man, Katie's upset with me because I've got windows open everywhere, and she gets up in the morning, and it's like 60 degrees in the house, and I'm very okay with that, and I'll just get over her complaining, right? But it's every morning, all right? But no, listen, I absolutely love, love uh, the fact that the seasons change here. Like, that's something I didn't have growing up in Texas. It was just summer. And then there was, you celebrate Christmas, but it was still summer. And then it was summer again, all right? And so I love that here. Uh, but all this is to say that summer's over, all right? Things are now shifting. School's back in session. And so it's time to pick up our series where we left off. And so last week we, we brought back uh, our, our Roman series and uh, well, I, I think it's going to lead us up to Christmas and everything's going to be great. Uh, Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Rome. That's why we call it Romans. I tell you all the time here that Christians are really, really brilliant when it comes to naming things. So the church to the letter of the people of Rome, we call it Romans, and we do that with everything in the New Testament pretty much. All right, um, Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Rome, and it's a city that by this point in the story, Paul hasn't been to yet. He's got no connection with the church in Rome yet. Now, he eventually will, after this letter is written, years after this letter is written, he will eventually be arrested and he will be in house arrest in Rome for several years. And so he'll get to know a lot of the people there. But by this point in the story, Paul doesn't have a connection with Rome. But he sees what's going on in Rome. He knows what's happening. He hears the stories. He sees how strategic the city is. And so he sees Rome and the church in the city of Rome as an incredible ally to help him do what God has called him to do, which is take the gospel to all the places that don't have the gospel yet. And so Paul wants to get to Spain, which is on the other side of Rome from him. And so he writes this letter, chapter 15 tells us, that he writes this letter basically as a missionary support letter. That he writes this letter to, to ask for help in getting the gospel past Rome and on into Spain. All right, that's what chapter 15 tells us. And so Romans is essentially a giant missionary support letter. Now, I've, I've written missionary support letters. Maybe you have too. Maybe you've received a missionary support letter when somebody feels like God is calling them to take the gospel to this place on mission and they need some financial help to make that happen. So they write the letter and say, hey, help a brother out, Right? Like, like we, this is valuable to us. Let's, let's do something about this. Could you help me get there? That's what a missionary support letter is. And that's exactly what Romans is, except Romans is an absolute masterpiece. Absolute masterpiece. Um, Paul doesn't just come out and say, hey, we're on the same page, help a brother out. No, no, he, he crafts a logical argument from beginning to end 
for the global need of the gospel and why God is raising up him and others to take that gospel to all the other places. He shows the Roman church why they ought to help him get there. It is a masterpiece. Now, logical arguments, they they tend to have a certain flow to them, right? You, You move from point A and you establish point A and then you move on from point A to point B, and once you establish point B, it therefore leads to point C. That's what a logical argument is, right? You establish one thing, and then you move on from there to the next. And, and so the illustration that we've been using to kind of put our heads around the, the letter to the Romans is that of a skyscraper. Skyscrapers are this incredible feat of engineering. You don't just take a bunch of tall stuff and lean it together teepee style and then call it a skyscraper, right? Get your extension ladder and a flagpole and maybe your best fly fishing rod and just lean them all together and say, skyscraper, right? That's not what you do. There, there's a structure there. There's a plan there. You, you, you pour a foundation and there's some middle pieces and then you got the stuff on the top, right? There's a, there's a plan, a strategic plan to the skyscraper. And so, and so, so far in the first few chapters of this letter, Paul has laid the foundation. He's made it abundantly clear abundantly clear that all men, all people everywhere are guilty of sin. Like that's the foundation of the book of Romans because of the core level rebellion in every one of our hearts against a holy and good creator. The righteous judge of all the earth must do what is just and give us what we deserve. That's the foundation of Romans. Paul calls this fair punishment God's wrath. Other places in the Bible that simply calls it hell, right? And so what we said before in here is that this means that hell is not simply some fringe doctrine cooked up by people of a bygone era to control other folks. It is the perfectly appropriate response of an infinitely holy God upon sin and upon sinners. It's what is necessary. It's what is required because of the action. Otherwise, God wouldn't actually be just. He, He wouldn't even be God. Right? Best case scenario, he's an impotent king. A lame duck monarch that is actually powerless to fix anything of real importance. We need God's wrath. We, we need God to be perfectly just or else, well, there's actually no hope in this world that wrong things could ever be made right again, right? I mean, think through this for a second. Human justice, it, it might sometimes attempt to fix things, might sometimes to attempt to fix things, and sometimes it gets it right, but sometimes we don't even care whether we get it right. Even on our best day, human justice can never, ever see all the details. We just can't. We, we don't have eyes to see every angle of the problem. So we can never know the true motives of people's hearts. And so justice, this side of heaven, even on our absolute best day, will never be anything short of short-sighted. It can never be anything other than patching things together to our best ability. That's on our best day. Sometimes it's completely maligned, right? The wrath of God is the greatest news in the world for those who have been on the receiving end of injustice. The greatest news ever. Evil will not, cannot last forever. There is a fix. All things will one day be repaired and set right. That is a promise that finds part of its fulfillment in the wrath of God. We need God to act justly. But the wrath of God is also terrifying news to all those who have been on the giving end of injustice, right? And that includes 
the infinite injustice of rebelling against the perfectly good and wise Creator King. It includes that. Because of God's infinite value, the Bible would describe our rebellion against Him as the crime above all other crimes. Is God just there, too? Yeah, He is, right? The God of perfect justice will act consistently with His character. Bank on it. But we call this series Justin Justifier for a reason, right? God is not only perfectly just, He's also the great justifier. That's something that God, speaking through Paul, calls himself in chapter 3. He is both just and justifier. Not only is God perfectly just, but he's also the one who justifies, someone who declares sinners to be innocent. So we have another layer of our gospel skyscraper, right? We begin, we've poured the foundation, but now we're beginning to work our way to the top. And There's a problem, though, because, well, you know that you're not innocent. And God certainly knows that you're not innocent, right? And so how could he ever declare sinners to be justified and still considered just? Like, can God be both of those at the same time? I can't be both of those at the same time. I can't be just. If I were capable of perfect justice, I couldn't be completely just and then let people off without getting what they deserve, could I? Exactly, Charlie. (laughs) Letting people off the hook is a terribly unjust thing to do. But God is unique because the answer of how he fulfills both, how he's both perfectly just and perfect in mercy, well, the answer to that is the cross of Jesus, right? It's, it's the good Sunday school answer. Like, how does God do this? Jesus. The answer is Jesus. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, put on flesh. He dwelt among us, lived among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. And he died on the cross as a substitute to pay the debt that we owe for sin. That's the gospel, right? Justice has not been ignored. It has not been sloughed off. It has been met in full by the spilled blood of Jesus. And so God does act in perfect justice. And in chapter 1, of Romans, Paul tells us that the righteous will live by faith, right? That those who belong to Jesus, those who are recipients of Jesus' work on our behalf are those who in faith place their trust in Jesus instead of themselves. Again, that's the gospel. That those who belong to Jesus have laid down their futile attempts to exalt themselves and save themselves and entrusted in His work instead for them. It's not because you've earned something or unlocked some secret clue that others haven't been smart enough to figure out yet. It's not because uh, you've said a magical incantation or because you wrote a large enough check to buy into the system. Those who belong to Jesus are the ones who have heard the voice of the King calling them to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And this leads us to our text for this morning. Look at verse 6 with me. Romans 5, verse 6, Paul says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the who? For the ungodly. All right, so Paul starts out by calling us weak. And I don't know about you, but them's fighting words. Right? 
Whether you know it or not, this is a massive sentence, and we got to walk through a couple of specific words he uses here. And he calls us weak. Like, like anybody else in the room feel like they need to puff up their chest a little bit and say, who are you talking to, Paul? But Paul isn't talking about physical strength here. He's talking about character, actually. As in moral weakness. Moral weakness. Now, anybody who's taken an intro to philosophy class has a cobbled together idea of free will, right? People on the fringes of theological conversations, they, they do too. It comes with the territory. In other words, do we actually have a choice in things? You ever thought through that? Yeah, yeah, of course you have. Obviously. Do, do we actually have a choice in things? Or do we live in a deterministic world? And if so, does it go all the way into fatalism? Some of you know what those words mean. Others don't. You're okay. Like, do we actually have a choice in things? And if you've spent any time at all trying to think through this stuff, then you begin to piece together a system that at least makes sense in your head about how all these things play in. And, and listen, whether you know it or not, a lot of those pieces probably have their origin in biblical theology. They really do. Like, like, certainly not all, but many of those pieces do. Massive pieces of Western thought would not be Western thought without a Christian worldview. They lean on it. It's standing on that ground. But Paul says here something in verse 6 that I think very, very, very few people delving into this conversation have ever actually spent any time thinking through. It's the idea of moral weakness. See, Paul would argue that the question of choice versus non-choice is actually the wrong question. Writing under the authority of the Holy Spirit, Paul assumes here that, well, that we can go ahead and choose all the things that we want to all day long, but our wills are too weak to ever choose the correct thing. The godly thing. The thing that's pleasing to God. Martin Luther called this the bondage of the will. That deep down at the very core of who we are, we enthusiastically choose sin instead of God because sin is what we actually want. It's what we crave and chase after with every bit of our being. Left to our own devices, we can't choose God and what's pleasing to God because our wills are slaves to something. Slaves to our sin. We could have all the free will we ever wanted, but short of the grace of God illuminating our heart and changing what we treasure most, we will never, ever choose godliness because godliness is actually unattractive to us. We don't even want it. So why is that important for us in our efforts this morning? Because Paul says that it's in this moment that Jesus steps in. In the moment where we don't even want to want him. Jesus goes, howdy boys. Since he dies for the ungodly. And ungodly is another word that we need to kind of define in this little haymaker of a sentence, right? It says that Jesus died for the ungodly. So who are the ungodly? Well, in New England, like ungodly tends to take on the, the connotation of, of the crowd that would say, hey, listen, I, I don't really do the church thing. Like, I, I, I'm not that person. I'm glad that it makes you happy. I'm glad that you find fulfillment of that, but it's not really my thing. I'm, I'm set, right? That's not the crowd that Paul's talking about here. It's not the, the standard New England fair, the, the that's good for you, but it's not really good for me. It's not even really on my radar crowd, right? No, for Paul, the ungodly are those who are intentionally impious. They're even antagonistic to God. They fight and rail against them. They set themselves up as one who is actively working against God and his goodness. 
So we have moral weakness, a bondage to our wills of sin, and, and we have an enthusiastic antagonism against God. We're a mess, man. In case you weren't aware, we are not the good guys in the Bible's story. Right? We're just, we're just not. Like, any kind of attempt to, to make man, to make ourselves as the hero of the Bible is really failing to read the Bible at all. We're a mess. And in verse 6 here, of Romans chapter 5, Paul says that it's while we were still weak that Christ came to die for the ungodly. Now he's patient with us and, and not even that he's generous towards us. No, he, he died for us. We're not talking about philanthropy here. We're talking about sacrifice. He laid his life down. But there's a third word that we need to spend some time defining this morning. And it's, it's the tiny little word for. Right? Most of the time in the New Testament, uh, there's a couple of Greek words that are used for the word for. Uh, very, very common, like several thousand times in the New Testament, the Greek word gar and the Greek word ice. All right? All right, both of these words uh, have very simple meanings. Uh, gar means because, ice means to. All right? In the beginning of uh, verse 6 here, we see gar. All right? For, while we were still weak, right? And so, that's the word. But in this case, there's a second word, for in verse 6. Where is it? For while we were still weak, at the rise time, Christ for, died what? For the ungodly. This time, the Greek word is the word hyper. You're like, oh, I know what hyper means. We use it as a prefix for stuff all the time, right? Something that is above and beyond. And so we slap it on to all kinds of English words and we sound like we're smart because we, you know, we had a prefix. Oftentimes, hyper means above or beyond but not in this case. This time it means for the sake of. On behalf of. In other words, Jesus' death on the cross actually accomplished something. He died for something. It wasn't simply an illustration of sacrifice. It wasn't a, a model of love that we should you know, maybe think about trying to copy ourselves. Those things are kind of also true, but first and foremost, the death of Jesus on the cross actually purchased something. It purchased weak-willed and ungodly sinners for God by ponying up and paying the debt that was owed. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. On behalf of the ungodly. And if that strikes you as a nonsensical thing to do, you're not alone because Paul thinks the same thing. Look at verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, there may be some of you in here who are the more of the hero type. I, I at least imagine myself being that sometimes. Uh, am I alone in that? Um, you pride yourself on being the type of person that runs to the fire instead of away from the fire. Like, like every church needs a good hero type. Paul here, though, has some points, to, some, some things to flesh out. He says that 
one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Somebody that you think is a stand-up citizen, like a model person, like uh, maybe they're respectable in the community. He says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Let's, so let's, let's paint a little scenario to flesh, flesh this out, to tease this out. Let's say you've got this really respected member of the community, all right? Uh, you don't really know him, but like he's done some really great stuff for the town and everybody thinks the world of him and all that kind of stuff. Let's say he's got heart failure, he's lying in a hospital bed, and everybody in this room is a perfect match for a donor. How many of you today are saying, sign me up? Those crickets that you're hearing is another word to describe scarcity. Paul says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. I mean, that sounds good. Somebody ought to do that, but that's really somebody else's job, right? I don't really know the person. Then Paul says, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Here he's not talking about morally good people. He's talking about those that you're fond of. Somebody that you hear their name and you go, oh, that guy? Yeah, he's good. It's a good guy right there. I like that guy. We hang out whenever we can. Somebody you're fond of. Same scenario, same heart transplant that's needed. You're still a perfect match. We might now finally be to a place where you at least ask the question of yourself. Again, how many of you are signing up? I mean, your buddy needs a new heart, right? What are you going to do about it? I mean, yeah, you're going you're gonna to die if you give him yours, but like, you're a perfect match. Come on. Don't you want good for your buddy? Paul says one might dare even to die for that person. Still, though, it's, it's rare, isn't it? And all the hero types in the room want me to take it to the next level, right? Everybody wants me to go, hey, Stephen, go one more layer to this. Talk about my family. Absolutely, I'm going to lay my life down for my family. Woo! I'm in. I love them. I'll do anything for them. You want to talk about my daughter? It's done. <laughs> right? But in verse 8, Paul doesn't go that direction. He goes the opposite direction, doesn't he? See, Paul doesn't care what kind of sacrifice you would make for those you love most because Jesus doesn't die on behalf of his buddy. He doesn't lay down his own life for the sake of someone respectable. No, no, no. Paul says that he lays down his life. Jesus dies to save sinners. Sinners. Weak-willed and ungodly sinners. You can pretend to pat yourself on the back all you want for our hypothetical scenario. You might just run headlong to make the greatest sacrifice ever for those you love most. Good job. But Jesus' story isn't hypothetical. And he ran headlong to make the greatest sacrifice imaginable for bad guys in the story. The ones he doesn't owe anything to. The ones who in their pride and their self-indulgence defy God and exalt themselves. Jesus died for them. On behalf of them. Why? Because it's a demonstration of His great love. Right? That's what verse 8 says. For God shows His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, our culture's definition of the word love is something that we tend to pick on here from time to time. It's a constant target for us. Um, love gets all kinds of 
gets used in all kinds of situations that don't really make sense if you think about what the word's supposed to mean. All right, so I love my wife, and I love the Dallas Cowboys, and I love tacos, right? All right, and so all those things are very, very true, but like, surely they're, they're not in the same category. Unless I find some really good tacos. And so the word love has been reduced to something that describes the emotion I feel about something that is currently pleasing to me. Right? That, that's the way we use the word. If, if that thing makes me happy right now, then I love it. But if my tastes change or if I get some new opportunities or if that thing or person does something that, that's displeasing to me, then I don't love it anymore, right? That's the way we use the word love in our culture. And that's why in our culture we've created this thing out of nowhere that, that would say that we fell out of love of something. That logic can only make sense if we start out the gate with a faulty view of love. The biblical definition of love, however, is an others-focused emptying of yourself for the good of that other. Despite the value that they bring to you, despite what they can offer back to you in the Bible, love is more akin to a sacrificial service than an emotion. What's funny to me is that we kind of all naturally understand this to be true, right? Don't we, don't we absolutely, I almost said love, don't we adore it when stories like this are told in our culture? Like, don't we flock to those stories and share those stories on Facebook and do everything we can to celebrate and say, great job, whoever. When we see those sacrificial tales told around us, like, like it was September 11th this week, like the stories that were told and retold are still being told all these years later. They're the stories of sacrificial moments, aren't they? Those are the stories we want to remember. Those are the stories that keep getting brought up. We all long for the biblical version of love. We, we, get a, we immediately sense that it's good and that it's right and that it's beautiful and we celebrate it as much as we can. But then after a while, the excitement begins to wane. And the stories get forgotten. We all slip back into our old ways again, don't we? I mean, that, that's great. What a sacrifice. But did you see how that person hurt me? How could I have ever have wasted my time on them? And our taste for another worldly love begins to fizzle out and it's not long before we're back to that fickle emotion that rises and falls based on our circumstances. It's almost like we've all got this bent in our hearts that wants sin more than godliness. Wonder where we heard that before. So, so why is this distinction between biblical love and our cultural culture's definition of love important to us this morning? Like, what, what purpose does it serve to make fun of it again? Because it changes the way we read the words, shows his love for us. It changes the way we read it. Like, like if we take our culture's definition of love and we plug it into the logic of this verse, we naturally, we can't help it, we place ourselves at the very center of his affections. We are what he values most. We are what we, he prizes above all other things. Like, why wouldn't he go to extreme lengths to save us? Have you seen us? And from that point on, the proof texts, they, they just kind of write themselves, don't they? I mean, we even sing them sometimes. He thought of me above all. If, however, 
If, however, we take the biblical view of love and we plug it into the logic of this verse, a, a love that is self-emptying for the good of another, regardless of what that, that object of love might actually offer back to us. If we take that view of love and we plug it into the logic of this verse, then we aren't the natural choice for God's love because we're awesome. We're the natural choice for God's love because we aren't. It's precisely because we don't have anything to offer back to him. I mean, have you seen us? In other words, God gets the most glory because he freely bestows his great love on the least deserving. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. While we lacked the moral strength to even want to choose him in return, while we kick and scream and revile his name, God goes, that, that right there is how I'm going to show off my great love. Get ready, creation. Watch what I do here. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look at verse 9. Since therefore... We have now been justified, declared righteous, declared innocent. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Okay, so creatures deserving wrath instead are lavished with his love. Isn't our God amazing? Isn't he glorious? Isn't he mighty to save? Isn't he gracious? Isn't he? Isn't he? Isn't he? And the intended and obvious result of our properly understanding who God is and who we are in light of the gospel is the fuel for worship. It's what drives it. And it ought to floor us. Leave us completely undone. Can I just call him like I see him for a second? Is this a safe place for that? Speaking as a pastor, whenever I come across, meet someone who isn't that impressed with the message of the gospel, or, and I know it won't seem like it's connected, but I promise that it is, uh, whenever a Christian I'm having a conversation with sloughs off a sin issue as if it doesn't matter, I, I immediately, always, and, and I mean always, assume that that person sees God too small and themselves too highly. I, it's just the truth. Now, now if that's you, I would, I would do everything I can to find a more gracious and patient and, and gentle way of saying that to your face. But it's just the truth. It is. I, I love you. I want good for you. But it's also my job to weed through the games that we play and the lies that we tell to ourselves and put my finger on the actual spiritual problem instead of just the symptoms that flow out of it. See, the root of both of those heart issues, the, the one who isn't impressed with the gospel and the one who thinks that sin is a non-issue, the root of both of those heart issues is a failure to comprehend just how insanely much we've been given in light of how little we deserve. It's the root of both of those problems. The intended and obvious result of our properly understanding who God is in light of who we are and what the gospel does is the fuel for worship. It 
floors us if we actually understand it. It's really hard to think too highly of yourself and walk in sin when you're spending all your time in awe. It's just the truth. But like I, like I talked about last week, there are fruits that come with this right standing before God. Here Paul's talking about this spontaneous worship that's birthed out of justification. But there are other fruits that come from this unearned right standing. And so look at verse 10. For if while we were, what's that word? Enemies. That's the worst he's called us yet. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his what? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay, so we, we talked about this last Sunday, right? That, that the follower of Jesus has not been saved to neutrality. Right? We, don't, we don't simply escape the wrath we deserve. We're also, also lavished with the good things that we don't deserve. Like, what a picture, man. And in this case, Paul begins to, to bring up reconciliation. Reconciliation is when you take two people that used to be buddies, but then they had a falling out, and so now they don't talk to each other anymore, and you fix the problem so that now they're back together and can be buddies again. That's what reconciliation is, right? Oftentimes, this is done through the process of a mediator. Someone who can kind of look out for the interests of both people, help them negotiate terms and stuff, right? So who does Paul say our mediator is? Jesus. Jesus in his mediatorial act of dying on the cross. He paid the debt of our sins. So the terms have been met, right? He acts as a mediator. What was causing the separation has been taken away through the gracious act of God himself. Because of Jesus, a holy God and a sinful man, those who are by default enemies of each other, we, we don't simply become non-combatants. We become friends. We are reconciled. We, we are not saved to neutrality. We are saved to full reconciliation with God. But there's another, one more piece to this that needs to be pointed out for our purposes this morning. So the reconciliation, it, it happens because of what Jesus purchases through his death, right? But Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? What does verse 10 say? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, comma, now that we are reconciled, comma, shall we be saved by his what? So Jesus' resurrection, according to the Apostle Paul, is an assurance that Jesus will go on to fulfill all of his other promises to us. That, that those who have been reconciled will remain reconciled to the end. Right? That's what he says. That, so how do we know that? Well, it's because the one who has provided that reconciliation for us defeated death itself. Like, is there anything he can't pull off now? Like, like is there anything that's going to be too big a workload for him? No, he has purchased our reconciliation and he's the one hanging on to it till the end. We're okay. We can have confidence. An eternal confidence. A hope-filled confidence that he will carry us through. Because Jesus lives, I can 
face tomorrow, right? So what do we do with all this? Like, how do we respond to God's word this morning? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God this morning. I think, I think you do that by repenting of sin and leaning into what God has revealed about himself in Romans 5, right? Through his word. Maybe, maybe you're wrestling with the why part of your salvation. The why part of, of why God would save you. The answer that you need to finally arrive at is not how special am I, but how amazing is he? And then you let that be the fuel for your future worship. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have some leaders up front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us this morning. Uh, we should get coffee sometime, whatever. Uh, listen, though, you can respond to God's word this morning too. You do that by repenting of sin and confessing Jesus as Lord. Those who belong to Jesus, those who are the recipients of Jesus' work on their behalf are those who in faith place their trust in Jesus instead of themselves. They've laid down their futile attempts to exalt themselves and to save themselves and they've trusted in his work instead. It's not because you've earned something or unlocked some secret clue that no one else is smart enough to figure out. It's not because you cashed in the big enough check or said the incantation those who belong to Jesus are those who have heard the voice of the king saying, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And have responded in kind. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'll be down front here if somebody needs to needs help walking and talking through what that act of faith looks like. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Romans. God, when we ask the question, why did you save? Help us be honest with ourselves. Help us see our great need. I think we're normally blind to that. I think we fight against that. We normally think that we're pretty rad. But your word convicts. So would you show us who we are in light of who you are? For those of us who know you here, would you, would you draw us into deeper relationship with you? With our understanding, our deeper understanding of just how crazy the gospel actually is. Just how unbelievably insane the offer of salvation that is presented to us is. With those of us who are, are growing in our understanding of that this morning, would you you help us find our rest in you and would it fuel our devotion would it fuel our worship would it unite us even as a body of believers God for those in here who don't know you yet would you make yourself known to people this morning would you give us the courage to walk in faith and would you call people to yourself in Jesus name we pray Amen.